Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. So today I've been thinking about modern Christians' relationship with Judas. Of course, bringing that up right off the top may be surprising to a lot of people, even to make that statement. We tend to consider Judas to be almost a satanic character. In most productions that I've seen, movies, etc., about the story of the Gospels, Judas is brought to us almost in the form of the antagonist from the very beginning, the true antagonist. There's, of course, the antagonist characters of the Pharisees, but there's always Judas, this conniving, almost snidely whiplash-like character in the background at first, and then in the foreground, right at the moment where he betrays Jesus. And this, I think, comes out of a number of mistakes or errors about our considerations of the story. One of them is, of course, just the theatrical appeal. We like in modern day the idea of this devious betrayer against the hero, Jesus-like character in many different stories. This isn't the only one where this kind of a theme appears. It's easy. It's obvious. We like to know who the villain is right up front. We tend to get a little bit uneasy when somebody who even fooled us into believing in the first place that he was a good guy turns out to be a bad guy in the end. And why that is, well, personally, I think it's because we find it a little too eerily relatable sometimes, but I'll get more into that later. So the first thing that I'm going to do is try to dispel some of our impressions about Judas. And before I move on, the second reason why we have this negative impression of Judas right from the get-go, Judas Iscariot, of course, is that the Bible itself presents him as an antagonistic character almost from the very beginning. In fact, yes, from the very beginning. But we have to keep in mind that when we read of Judas in the Gospels, we're reading it from the perspectives of people, Matthew, John, who already knew in retrospect what he had in fact done in the end. The picture that is painted of Judas is painted with the knowledge that he was going to betray Jesus in the end. So it's understandable that the people who are writing these stories, well, yes, I agree with Christians that these stories are also inspired of the Holy Spirit, they're painted with that sort of sort of jadedness. And part of the reason, and I'm going to argue this, why that jadedness was pro- very probably there is because they didn't expect it. They didn't suspect it when it happened. And when you have that experience, if you had somebody in your life, and many of us have, as a friend, maybe even a family member, who seemed like a genuinely good person at the beginning, and then suddenly turns out to turn, or in the course of time, turns on us and becomes an antagonist to our lives, that's far worse as far as our impressions of that person. It's one thing to encounter somebody who is obviously going to be an enemy in a sense, or at least antagonistic to us, at the very beginning. Our impressions of them simply start out as bad, and we kind of pass them off 
water off of a duck's back, especially the more mature we are. They're never going to be my friend or even an ally, so why bother? But somebody who comes into our lives in the first place as a protagonist, not as a protagonist, as an ally and a friend, and then turns on us later on, that is somebody who is hard to let, for us to let go of, hard for us to come to terms with as an antagonist, because that wasn't our first impression. So think about this. Think about it really in context. Let go of your predispositions, your predetermined impressions of who Judas was, and look at it as we actually see it written in the Gospels, not in the context of how the other apostles present it to us, but what actually happened. Judas was taken into the closest trust, the twelve apostles, first of all. He was one of those people who was sent out two by two, not just to proclaim the gospel, to pro proclaim Jesus, but to cast out demons, to do miracles in his name. Judas was doing that. And let us remember with sage foreboding, as the, as the older English ways say, or English language that is, that Jesus himself pointed out that there will be those who do miracles, who cast out demons, who heal in his name, and Jesus, that is the Godhead, will say to that person and those people, depart from me, I never knew you. Judas, very likely, was one of those people. When Jesus said at the Last Supper that there was going to be one who betrays him, did any of the disciples suspect it? Again, we see as written in retrospect that Judas was the one who was going to betray him. But that's not the story we get in the moment. In the moment, all the disciples are talking to each other, Judas included. Who could Jesus possibly be talking about? One of us betray him? Unimaginable. The only person who has any suspicion that we read of in this story is the one who doesn't need suspicion because he already knew. He was already certain. He simply answered John's question. The one who dips the bread with me in the cup. And by the way, that was, as far as I understand the tradition, that was an honoring thing to do for Judas. He was honoring Judas by doing so. And just to put that into context, that probably means that what Jesus was actually attempting to do was to give him one more shot, one more chance to repent. So it was in the context of Jesus knowing that he was about to betray him. But anyways, I just wanted to give that a little bit of context. But the main point being, the reason why Judas wouldn't have been suspected of anything ahead of time is because when you, if you were actually one of the one of the apostles in that time frame, living with Jesus, with Judas, you would have seen no difference. Judas was doing not just apparent good, but actual good, right alongside the rest of the apostles. He wasn't suspected because there was no outward reason to suspect him at all. He wasn't this snidely whiplash character, you know, spinning his mustache, going into the shadows more often than others. 
because I'm sure they were all uneasy as they were dealing with their own knowledge of their own comparison to this guy, to this Jesus of Nazareth, who they were following. But Judas probably wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary by comparison to the rest of them. So Judas was just one of the gang. See, if he had been obviously duplicitous in his behaviors, if he was something like that snidely whiplash kind of character, an obvious usurper, what have you, obvious betrayer, then he would have been suspected. He would have been the theatrical version of Judas that we very often have today. The very fact that he wasn't suspected was proof that he didn't have any obvious outward behaviors that would have marked him that way. He looked, again, like the rest of the gang. And this is, I think, something really important for modern Christians and modern people in general to get. Because his betrayal was, again, not this obvious duplicity, not anything that somebody could see. He was practicing, if you will, Christianity. He was one of the first members of a new covenant that was being enacted in front of him. He wasn't a Pharisee in the sense of a Jewish hypocrite. He was the first Christian hypocrite. He didn't betray Jesus because of a false interpretation of the law of Moses, of the Old Covenant. He betrayed Jesus by his own false interpretation of the New Covenant. And I understand it wasn't quite fully enacted yet. And he, in his antagonistic way, actually helped in bringing that about. But that didn't change the fact of what Jesus said about him, that it would be better for him to have never have lived. To never to have lived. So what I want us to understand, and this, yes, is my theory, and it could be, at least it's my hypothesis, and it could be wrong, but I'll continue to argue it, and hopefully it will become a little clearer. So let me build it a little bit more. I think one of the most important stories for modern people to understand when it comes to Judas is when we first see his betrayal starting to be fully enacted. It's when the woman comes with the expensive perfume and begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And Judas, being a man mindful of money, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with being the kind of person who's mindful about money. That's a very responsible thing to do as far as resources. There are many modern people who are doing genuinely very good things who are very mindful of money in much the same way as Judas was. I don't think that was his corruption. Now, yeah, I, I get it. Jesus pointed out that you can either serve him or serve mammon. You can't do both. But I don't even think that's exactly what Judas was doing. Pay attention to what he said next. He said that this perfume could be sold for a great sum of money and the money given to the poor. He was saying something that according to Old and New Covenant, 
religious practices, if you will, or just good moral behavior, was a praiseworthy intention. Now, yes, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, but in any case, in one of the Gospels, or a couple of them, it points out that Judas had been taking, was a keeper of the purse, and had been taking from the purse for himself. But how often do we really question what that means? See, taking for himself in the simplest interpretation of that would have meant that he was getting things, possessions, whatever, for his personal self. Kind of like when the one man took idols and gold, and I think it was mostly silver, when he was specifically, as the rest of the Israelites told, uh, this is, by the way, in the, with the, in, in the invasion of Jericho, they were specifically told not to take any plunder and certainly not to take from any take of any of the gods and idols, that, that is, the idols of the gods, that were there in Jericho, and one man did it, and he was stoned to death. Now, that's one possible interpretation of the sort of thing that Judas might have been doing. He might have just been gaining possessions for himself. But that is not necessarily the case. What if, in his own mind, he was being genuine? In other words, he actually did want to use the money to give to the poor. In other words, what if he had been taking from the purse, the purse for the apostles, the money collection that they had among them to share, and had been using it for his own, quote, good purposes? What if he had been, quote, giving to the poor? And not just, quote, but actually. Can we square with that? Now, that doesn't seem bad in and of itself, does it? If that were the case, our first impression is, well, why wouldn't Judas do that? Why wouldn't Judas be justified in doing that? Well, of course, he was taking from the overall purse of the disciples, of the apostles, of Jesus, the overall collections of the money. It would, it's one thing to do it with that money. It would be quite another if he was doing it with his own personal money. And we have no reason to think that the apostles didn't still have money of their own. They simply had an overall collection. Judas was taking from the overall collection. And if his intentions were genuine, in other words, if that was not a lie, and what the other, what the gospel writers are telling us is still true, what he was doing is he was taking from the purse for his own interpretation of what was good. He, in that case, was corrupted, not by being selfish, in the way that we typically think selfishness enacts. He would have been corrupted by taking his own interpretation of what was good, not just according to Torah, according to the Old Testament, but according also to what Jesus himself was saying, and trying to enact it in his own way, taking from money that was not his own. That is, not just his own. He was trying to do something, quote, good. Does this really break what we read in the Gospels? I don't think so. 
Now, again, this is just one possible interpretation. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not trying to argue that it's the correct interpretation. What I'm pointing out is that we should have an honest reading of Scripture and ask the question, does my interpretation break what the Bible actually says? I don't think so. And just consider this in relationship to modern-day people, modern-day religious people. And I think it has an eerie relationship with some of the corruptions that we see in modern day. See, it's a very easy thing. It's an obvious thing to be corrupted by selfishness, to be corrupted by arrogance. But that's not the only kind of corruption we see, and it's especially not the kind of corruption we see among religious people. What corrupts religious, quote, well-intentioned people is defining what is good for themselves rather than looking to a higher power or a higher standard than themselves for what is good. They're not keeping themselves accountable. Corrupt religious people are the mothers who try to enact their goodness upon people who don't even want their, quote, goodness. Their generosity is a bother. Their generosity is sand in the eyes. But they still enforce it upon you because of their, quote, beliefs of what is good. It's the missionary who's out in a third world country believing that his efforts are for the good of the nation he's helping, or at least the community he's helping. And he never bothers to turn around and look at the fact that he's actually causing things to become worse in that place. It's an easy thing to do, by the way. Just giving people straight resources when they don't have the cultural background and the disciplines and so on to use those resources in a constructive manner may very well do harm rather than good. But because he is magnanimously, sorry, magnanimously using his time and his resources in a third world country and he's so generous and helpful because he's this first world country guy coming to these impoverished people and giving them stuff. It's easy to think on the outset that you're doing good. In fact, you might be doing the opposite. These things can be very hard to judge. If you just think because it's, quote, obvious that you're doing good, but you're not keeping yourself accountable to a higher standard, you could very well at least fail to do good, if not do straight up evil by doing so. In my studies in apologetics, one of the most important and I think pivotal lessons that I got is that very probably the sin of the Garden of Eden is of the exact same character. See, the Bible says that God lamented that they had become like him, understanding good and evil. But consider that in context of how people actually use knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just the knowledge that the ideas of good and evil exist. It's the fact that that then became our tool to use for our own ends. We can try to define what good and evil is for ourselves for our own advantage. 
we try to play God by determining for ourselves and for one another what good is and what evil is. And we may not even notice, as Judas, I think, didn't, that we are being evil at the deepest level by doing so. One of the things that I just said very recently is that the problem that I have with religious people is that they are really a stone's throw from a typical politician. Their real focus is not doing good, it's appearing to be a good person. That's a very different thing. See, if your primary focus is not on following a higher standard and a higher power, but rather on trying to be, that is, appear to be to other people, getting their approval that you are this, quote, good person, person, you are this, quote, Christian. That is a deeply dangerous and corrupting motive. And I think it is the motive of Judas. When Judas heard Christ say, heard Jesus say, the poor you will always have among you, you do not have me, always. That's not an exact quotation, it's more of a paraphrase. But that was Jesus' response to Judas when he said, we could have sold this perfume and given it to the poor. If Judas really had this idea of a moral compass, this idea of what it meant to be, though it hadn't been given the name yet, what it meant to be a Christian, then what he heard Jesus say in that moment was an antithesis to what he believed was good and right. He thought it was good to give money to the poor, always, period, no exceptions. And Jesus goes in his face and says, no, there are exceptions. There are times when you should be giving money, you should be giving resources, you should be giving time to God, that is to me, instead of giving to the poor. Or you will always have among you. Really consider that. Really try to put yourselves in the shoes, not, ne not just necessarily of Judas, but even of a modern Christian in many cases, and hear Jesus' words. They are almost callous if you take them in that context. That's how they sound. The poor you will always have among you. In other words, don't worry about them. They're always there. Doesn't that sound callous? If you look at it through that lens, Judas's reaction can be somewhat understandable, almost. And this is precisely the danger that I'm trying to bring up. If we take not what God says is moral and right, ethical, godly, Christian, but take our own interpretation of what is moral and right and Christian and godly, and put it over against what God himself says to us, we haven't just become corrupted. We've become corrupted in a deep sense that relates us with Judas himself. That should strike fear into our hearts, should it not? And does this not eerily relate once again? But not just modern religious people with modern Christians who've gone far too wrong. Take again the televangelist, who probably really believes 
that he's doing good, and therefore all of his riches, all of his popularity is well-merited. Because he's doing, quote, good. And then how wearily often we see these very same people fall. Fall to corruption, fall to evil in their lives. It's easy to get a big head when you are convinced, and for good reason, that you're doing a lot of good in the world. Now, of course, modern people don't even really have the option of of betraying Jesus himself. He's not physically here at the moment. But that doesn't mean that we can't fall to the same temptation as Judas. To define Christianity, godliness, righteousness, our own way, and not have the discipline, not have the accountability of Scripture and of God himself, of wiser Christians, to tell us that, no, we're missing the mark. No, there's actually something greater still. No, there's something far better than just appearing to be a good person, but we have to actually be a good person. We have to be accountable to that which is higher. And see, Judas, therefore, if he was not just this snidely person, this deeply corrupted, selfish human being, but somebody who was genuinely, in his own mind, trying to do good, then the rest of his story makes a whole lot more sense, does it not? Consider it. When Judas turns around and Jesus has been taken into custody, and he probably knew very well that possibly he was going to be beaten, bloody, and even killed, what's his response? He goes back to the Pharisees and he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. That seems not to just be some selfish, self-preservation kind of thing, but fully acknowledging the fact of what he'd done. He called it innocent blood. A few days ago, he might have very well thought in his own mind that Jesus was not at all who he said he was. Because in his own mind, Jesus had done the very opposite He had, in fact, advised the very opposite of what was, quote, Christian. Though, again, it hadn't been given the name yet. He goes into custody and he turns around and says, I betrayed innocent blood. What was he trying to do? He was trying to pay penance, was he not? And this is something that modern people chafe at as well, particularly Christians. I just use the word penance, not something we very often use today. We don't think the penance needs to be paid anymore. Why? Because Jesus paid the penance. It's this very story that we're going over. He was about to go to the cross and pay the price for the sins of all mankind. Ah, but what about penance and repentance in the context of individual human relationships? This is something that not only Jesus brought up, but Jesus still pointed out needs to be done on a regular basis in human relationships within the church. He was the one who talked about going back to somebody with whom you have an offense, and if they will not listen, you go back with somebody else or even a small group of people and try to get them to repent then. 
And if that doesn't happen, you bring in the church. And if that doesn't work, you cast him out. A lot of people think that's the opposite of forgiveness. No, that is not the opposite of forgiveness. Forgiveness is us letting go of the offense of the other person. Repentance, penance, that is payback, in a sense. Repaying for the offense is how you re-establish trust. It's how you re-establish relationship. Jesus also said, and pay attention, we're talking about the man who is bringing in the new covenant. He said, woe to those who cause these little ones to stumble. It would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their necks and be cast into the sea. Why would he say something like that? Well, consider in modern day, abusive parents who don't just cause little ones in the sense of young Christians to stumble. They ruin, or at least attempt to ruin, some of them thankfully are unsuccessful because of the child's own choices, but through their abuse, they at least attempt to ruin the lives of innocent, often innocent, at least defenseless children. If they continue to abuse, do not repent, and do not at least attempt to pay whatever penance they possibly can to those children, what can they do to repay that kind of wrong after those children have become adults? You can't rewind the clock. You can't go back to those children, your children becoming actual children again, going back to five and doing it all over again. That's no longer an option. What would you do if you were one of those parents and you felt the full brunt of your wrong? You actually understood it not as somebody who was trying to continue to just defend their own selfish gains, but as somebody who truly desired to do good. Not justifying it anymore. Not trying to put over, put a facade over it anymore, but fully acknowledging what you had done. And you desired to repay, that is to reestablish trust and good, healthy relationship with your grown-up child. How many people, if they felt the full brunt of that, would just throw themselves off of a bridge? Did you feel the click? That's what Judas did. See, he hadn't betrayed a child. In his own personal, intimate relationship with Jesus himself, he betrayed. And he saw it. He didn't throw himself off a bridge. He threw himself into a noose. And his guts spilled out. Penance is still a reality in modern day. It's just something that we don't need to repay to God anymore. We break a lamp or say an Xbox of a friend or a family member. What we are expected to do is repay. We're to pay penance. Why? 
Because if we didn't, we would be ruining the trust of that relationship forever. And yes, I do say forever. If the other person, if the offended, doesn't, or just allows that to kind of fly away. Let's say that the lamp or the Xbox was not just destroyed in accident. Even then, you should be repaid. You should at least be paid the cash money for the wrong, even if it's accidental once again. But let's say that it was in a fit of rage. If the person wronged in that case just says, nah, I'm going to, quote, forgive you, and doesn't expect any sort of repayment, then what you're really doing is no is not expecting, not wanting from the other person virtuous action. You're not wanting them to do, quote, the actual, not quote, actually, the right thing. You're putting a really low bar on the other person. No, we should want people to repay when they've done wrong. That's not just for our sake, that's for their sake. We should want healthy relationships with one another. Penance is still a reality. We still have it in our modern day, we just try to gloss over it many times with our, I think, faulty interpretation of what forgiveness actually means. That's the reality that Judas was dealing with within his own heart. He was corrupted, in my opinion, and I think it doesn't break the story. Just, just read it and try to judge it yourself. Judas, I think, was corrupted by his own sense of what was good. And he killed himself not because it was possible. As, as a lot, I've heard pastors say this. Pastors seem to think that it's possible that Judas could have repented just as Peter had repented. But repentance includes penance when it comes to this. What was Peter's penance? We read it. It's in the story. Jesus comes back after resurrection. He asks him three times, do you love me? Peter recommits himself in sorrow for what he had done. And all he did was deny Christ that he knew him. That's a very different thing from betraying Jesus for 20 silver, or was it 40 silver pieces? I can't remember which, but I know that whichever it was, if you read in the Torah, I think it's either in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, that is actually the price for, um, sorry, I'm forgetting exactly the right context, but the price for the head of a person. I'll have to look into it and confirm exactly in what context. But Judas betrayed him for that price to the Sanhedrin to the, quote, justice of the old hypocrisy that was dying away. It's easy for us to look at the Pharisees and think, ugh, those hypocrites. But they genuinely thought that they were interpreting the Jewish law correctly. It's a great deal harder for us to try to relate to Judas and see that he was the first man that's recorded at least, who is a hypocrite to the new covenant. But I think it's something that we all really should learn. He is our lesson. 
to be very cautious and very sure, very careful about how we handle our interpretation of what Christianity really is. Because he, in my opinion, thought he was following it. And because he took his interpretation over a higher power and a higher standard, he betrayed Jesus himself. So I hope that this has been interesting, as always, for everyone. I'll talk to you next time.